0: On that note, who is ready for a word today? That sounded like uh, time went back, one hour, first service reaction. How many people are excited for the word of God today? All right. That's better. So we are in a message series right now uh, called Timeless Truth, and If this is your first time this morning with us, we are in part four of this series. You can always go back and catch up on the previous three weeks on our YouTube channel, our website, Facebook page, podcast channel. You notice we have a lot of ways for people to do things, right? We try to make it as easy as we can. Many ways to enter into the content. So anyway, you can catch up on the first three weeks. We're in part four today. And... Essentially, the heart and the, the burden behind this series, Timeless Truth, is to really help us reflect and think upon the truth that the Word of God and its wisdom, its commands, and its instruction are timeless in a constantly changing culture. That culture changes all throughout the centuries. Would you agree with that? Things that seem hip and cool and normal and trendy to us today would have seemed so foreign and out of off the wall to people even 10 or 20 years ago. And I suppose it'll be the same 10 or 20 years from now that culture is constantly changing. And with it, the knowledge of the day and the philosophies of the day are also changing as well. You notice how anytime a way of thinking or a philosophical ideal emerges, it seems like it's absolute truth and it is the thing. But over time, it gradually deteriorates. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God, it stands forever. And so the point is, folks, is that we can take the word of God and we can view this as our absolute truth, our constant plumb line in the midst of a constantly changing world. When culture is pulling at us, and let's just acknowledge that the stream and the current of culture is strong and the sway is strong. If we are not anchored and grounded in truth, it is very easy, as James says, to be tossed to and fro in the waves of the sea, the swaying of culture as it is moving people around. But whenever culture goes one way, the people of God who are anchored in timeless truth can look at that and understand that's not kingdom, that's culture, and then we can set our feet on solid ground and continue to move in the direction of kingdom. And when we do, everything that we build our lives upon, or should say rather that God builds our lives on, will stand the test of time. If we build on the changing conditions of culture and the trendy philosophical ideals, then it's a straw house or a house of cards, guys, that's just one violent storm away from everything collapsing and imploding and people being miserable, devastated, and heartsick. The word of God is our truth. And here's the thing. Every generation that comes along has to hear this word afresh for themselves. The prophets that we've been visiting with in this series spoke to God's people and surrounding nations for a period of some 400 years, but there is uh, surprising consistencies and parallels to many of their messages, the point being that if we follow God's ways and his commands, there are blessings, provisions, and protection ...that we can expect to live under. These are promises of God, which means when we do what he says we should do... ...he will absolutely do what he says he will do. So there are blessings for obedience, but similarly, and it must be talked about... ...in the same context, there are consequences for disobedience. And every generation needs to hear this message afresh for themselves... The prophets brought this message through every single generation, and every generation needs to claim and own the covenant of God with them for themselves by their own faith, not the faith of previous generations. Does that make sense? previous generation set examples we raise up we lead but each generation is responsible for claiming and owning the covenants of God with them for themselves and so we are raising a next generation an up and coming generation listen to live by revelation and not by knowledge of the day to be guided by conviction ...of the Holy Spirit and not by feelings or emotions. Am I making sense? We are helping every generation to see that afresh. We were on our way to church this morning. I had a bunch of my kids with me. And I just had this kind of moment where there was that sort of nervous excitement that was setting over me. I was excited for the word that God was putting on my heart, but I was nervous at the same time. This happens every week, believe it or not. It does. Um, And so I asked the kids in the car, I said, hey guys, would you pray for dad uh, going up to church right now? Just nervous about the message. And so one of my daughters began to pray this very powerful prayer for me and God to speak through me. And then one of my other daughters Right after the first one prayed, um, she said, Dad, God just told me that he's going to captivate hearts today and you just need to be confident. And then she says, what does captivate mean? (laughs) Hallelujah. Yeah. And it just hit me right away. It was like this. this is, this is um, a encouragement to my children, but I thought, this is normal for us, actually. You know, this is normal for us because we're teaching them to hear the word of God and the voice of God for themselves but when she said what is captivate it was like she didn't even really know what the word meant and yet she was giving me a word that she felt like god had just spoke to her and all I'm trying to say in that little illustration is we are raising this next generation to hear From God and to live by revelation and conviction of the Holy Spirit, not by knowledge of the day, philosophy, or feelings and emotions that culture would suggest to them are the driving paramount factors in how they live their lives. That's culture. That's not kingdom. All right. We're going to visit today with the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah. And if you have never read the book of Zephaniah, I would encourage you to do that this week following our sermon. It's just three chapters in every one of these books of the, the prophets are just packed full of great stuff. But we're going to visit with Zephaniah a couple things, that just a bit of background. Zephaniah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah roughly in the year 630 B.C. There are years prior and after the, that year, of course, that um, span the time of his ministry. But that date is significant because at this point the northern kingdom of Israel has been completely overrun already conquered and exiled by the Assyrian empire in the north. All right? This would al- this was already prophesied and we talked about in some of our previous messages, okay? Especially Joel. And so the northern uh, empire of Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, led them away into exile, raped and pillaged their people. I mean, they've decimated the whole area. All right. At this point, the prophet Zephaniah, who is also a contemporary, just means that they were around in the same dates, of the prophet Jeremiah. And what their primary goal is, is to help the people of southern Judah, the southern kingdom, realize that what's happened in the north is going to happen in their area as well if they don't hear the message of the prophets to repent and turn back to God and make right what they have actually made wrong in their culture and in society eventually we know that this ends up happening in 5 I think 86 right around there BC the Babylonians come in and then fully conquer and exile the southern kingdom of Judah. But while, while Zephaniah and Jeremiah are around, they're actually kind of getting the attention of the people. The people are starting to make some changes. In fact, there was a particular king by the name of Josiah, who you'll see in the story today. Zephaniah had a lot of influence on Josiah, along with the king that was his great grandfather Hezekiah were two of the kings that led major reforms in Israel they actually started to write their ways and get back to walking with God the problem was is it never went beyond that one generation of reform and ultimately the following generations just one and two later fell back into apostasy and idol worship eventually leading to the Babylonian captivity all right so um Let's go ahead and open up to Zephaniah chapter 1. We'll read here the first seven verses. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. So there's his great-grandfather Hezekiah, the king. In the days of Josiah, so Josiah is presently king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along the wicked. I will cut off from man uh, from the face of the land, says the Lord. That's all language consistent with what the Lord said back in Noah's day in the book of Genesis, if you recall. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom, also known as Molech, those who have turned back from following the Lord, And have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Stop there. The day of the Lord is at hand. Part four, if you're taking notes today, I'm calling day of the Lord. Touched a bit on this in part one when we spoke about Joel. And that's because Joel also mentioned or referenced the day of the Lord some eight prophets of the twelve books of the minor prophets reference the day of the Lord in some capacity, Zephaniah is the one who is most prominently known for this recurring theme, just like Micah was the most prominently known for the theme of the remnant, while others had referenced that in their language, too. So day of the Lord, what is that? It is an event that takes place that is essentially a triggering and a release of God's judgment upon the waywardness and the wickedness of the people that God, through mercy and long-suffering, has been waiting to release for a time, giving ongoing opportunity and invitation for repentance and escaping this judgment. But there is a point in time, ultimately, where it is finally triggered, it is finally released, that God is going to deal with sin. He is not going to just turn a blind eye to it. He is merciful, but he is also just. And so the day of the Lord is when this triggering finally happens. Now, like any of these books in the series that we are talking about, the prophetic books, there are contemporary or near-term applications that are in view. The near-term view for Day of the Lord with Zephaniah is the pending Babylonian invasion which eventually happens. When it comes and it's God's judgment on his people, you could say the Day of the Lord has arrived. Now, ultimately, the greatest fulfillment of many of these things is always pointing towards or arcing to the eventual return of Christ, known as the Second Coming or Second Advent, When these things reach their fulfillment or completion. That would be called the great and awesome day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back and the final sifting of wheat and chaff occurs and the eternal age ushers in. Am I making sense? Day of the Lord present application for them. Day of the Lord eschatological eschatological application for the second coming. But then we also have... Present-day patterns that we can see are always in play. Meaning this, if we continue to walk in willful disobedience and sinfulness for a long enough period of time, God will allow the consequences, the heartache and devastation from the waywardness of those ways, walking in rebellion to Him, to eventually set on a man or a woman ultimately God's heart while there's still time is for those those judgments to turn the heart of a man or a woman back to God to still repent while there's time and come back under the covenant of blessing and protection that he's offering and inviting to them so Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord uh, quite a bit but also we see here in the first verse it says that he was a part of the lineage of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a king, and he was a good king, led reforms. But the point I want you to get in that is this. Zephaniah is sort of set apart or stands alone amongst the prophets by being a member of royal bloodline. He was part of the, the royal lineage from King Hezekiah. What, what does that infer or what does that mean? What can we gather from that? It means that he most likely enjoyed comfortable status and position in society. He very likely had the ear, if he wanted it, of King Josiah, but King Zephaniah was under a mission from God to bring a message of truth and warning to the people. And what I love and respect about him and so many of the prophets that we see is that he did not allow the comfort or convenience of his position to interfere with the conviction that God was putting on him to engage in a mission that would likely be very unpopular. You getting that? He was going to go to friends and family and high members of society who probably knew who he was. He was probably enjoying some present day privileges and he was willing to risk and throw all of that away Because he was a man on mission, he was a man under conviction. He had an uncommon sense of boldness in his present day in In church. Can I say, we need more men and women with an uncommon sense of boldness to stand for truth in the ways of God in a culture that's trying to sway everybody a different direction. This was Zephaniah. Here's the question I wrote down here. What are we using our platform for? He could have used that platform to just continue to keep well enough alone, but instead he used that platform to engage in conflict, to try to bring a very unpopular message in the hopes, really, and I think this is what we recognize in so many of the prophets and and men and women who are on God's mission, is that if even one would listen, it would be worth it to them, right? He's willing to risk it all <laughs> in his present comfort. What are we willing to risk, right, when God puts truth and conviction on our hearts and is leading and guiding us into how to stand for that truth and conviction and to what the world around us looks like today? Zephaniah was willing to risk it all. Let's take a look at verse 5 again. It says, And again, he's he's calling these, he's calling the people of Judah out for a number of things here. And in verse 5, he says, they worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Now you may just read past that and not think much of it, but there's, there's much meaning in this, okay? We know that there were designated places for worship designated altars for sacrifices and offerings that God had instituted among them. But what has happened is that the people of Judah have actually erected altars on the tops of their homes. They had flat roofs. They could go up on the roof and they could see the sky very plainly. They built altars on top of these houses, these roofs, and they were actually engaging in Animal sacrifices, offerings, and burnings of incense. Okay? Which I don't I hope I don't have to tell you is a form of idolatry, idol worship. Who were they worshiping? what well, says it right here. They were on the housetops, gazing into the skies. They were worshiping the astrological gods, the universe. Now, God made very strict commands all the way back in the law, in I believe Deuteronomy, you would find this, where He says very specifically, Do not become enamored with the stars and the celestials. They are given to you to enjoy, but never to worship. But now they're worshiping them. Here's why. Even though the Assyrians conquered Israel in the north, the pressure on the south was very intense. And some of the wicked kings were able to keep the Assyrians at bay by paying tribute to them. They were paying money to them from their wealth to keep them protected. But in exchange, diviners and enchanters and astrological worshipers were given protection and green passes in society to do this among them. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Did you know that it is still popular even today in uh, streams of culture to be enamored even to the point of worshiping the universe and energy? You hear people say many times, well, the universe is just going to make things work out for me. I don't know if you realize that or not, but that's not a very far step away from the kind of things that were happening back in Zephaniah's day. You don't worship those things, he says. They're there for you to enjoy and to marvel at God's creation, but they're just an arrow to point you to the creator of those things. They are there not to be worshipped. So they have these altars on the housetops. Verse number 4 It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Uh, It says, the names of idolatrous priests and pagan priests. So this is kind of in the same context of the celestials here and the diviners and the enchanters. But what's happening, guys, is they're mixing worship. You see that? They're mixing. And this is a... a, a really just deceptive way that the enemy is getting at people in our culture today is what we are bound to by Scripture as Christians is that there is only one true God and He does not share His worship with another. But it is a very popularly marketed Ideal that we need to be acceptant and inclusive of all other kinds of religions and pathways to God. Listen to me, you've probably heard or seen this argument before that does have traction in a culture today that if you are not acceptant of other ways, then you are intolerant, you are bigoted. And you are filled with hate, and this is the problem in our world today, would be the train of thinking and logic behind many of these philosophies. You see, the problem is is that we, we have been given a bad rap. Because a genuine Christian is not hate-filled, they're love-filled, but they're also bound by the same premises of Scripture that say we are to walk in love and love our fellow brother and sister. We are also bound by the same Scriptures that say God will share His worship with no other. There is one and there is one alone. And many of these ideals are kind of preying upon people Who have been wounded or hurt. It's a a very ridiculing strategy that lures and appeals to people who have been wounded or hurt by religion or have any kind of bitterness towards anything that would assert authority or supremacy over them. But the problem is, is that God is supreme, He is preeminent. Do you see how this gets really confusing for even people who are in the church to try to navigate these things today? I'm just trying to help us get grounded. I'm trying to help us see. It's actually not very different than it's always been. It's just wearing different clothing. And so we recognize that no matter what's happening, God says, I will not share my worship with another. Verse six, he says, those who have turned back from following the Lord and who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. So basically, guys, just a quick point and I'll move on from this one. But this message that the prophets bring, it's a message that is always being presented, let's say it in kind of modern terms, to the unbeliever and to the backslider. He's saying those who have turned away from the Lord, backsliders, and those who have never sought the Lord, unbelievers, or don't have a genuine, true relationship with Jesus Christ, right? The good news is, while there is warning and there is uh, conviction that the prophets are hoping the people will get, there is also still an invitation, and the invitation is for the unbeliever, it is for the backslider as well. Those who have once walked with the Lord, but for whatever reason in life, they have taken a wrong turn, went down a wrong path, very resembling of the prodigal in the story that Jesus tells, and the father is just as interested in welcoming back the prodigal into the home as he is those who have never even been a part of the family. Right? Unbelievers and backsliders alike. Let's jump over to verse number 12. It says, It shall come to pass at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Wow. Settled in complacency. So what's happened is the mixing of religions and and the allowance of the cultural sway to just sort of be melded in with the things they've previously known that have now diluted and tainted everything, it's no longer pure and it must remain pure, is that it has now caused the people of Judah to be lulled to sleep like a lullaby with an infant child. Settled in complacency, which just means to have basically settled and calcified. Complacency, guys, it's, it's that place. And he says, they say the Lord will not do good or not do evil. And this is the deception of sin that people eventually become convinced of is that they can do whatever they want and live however they want, and there really will never be any consequences for that. (laughs) It sounds great. And culture would love to serve it up to people. In fact, philosophers have been shooting these things at, at society for centuries. Seneca, Socrates, Plato, many of the philosophers of their day would say things like, guys, life is short. You only have one life to live. When it's over, it's over. So you might as well live it up and enjoy it. There's no consequence. What's right for you is right for you. And you just need to make the most of it while you're here. And when it's done, it's done. Even Solomon went down that road a little bit in Ecclesiastes. They're settled in complacency and the problem is is that now they have allowed themselves to get so entrenched in this that as we see in many other places in the bible they don't even know what's right from wrong they can't even distinguish the difference between the two to be settled in complacency listen it's not just to commit one sin And I don't mean to make light of any sin at all, but when a person commits a sin for the first time, there's often the strong presence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit trying to lead that person to repentance and forgiveness and back to righteousness, right living, right? Settled in complacency is not like just, I made a mistake and I know it, I really messed up. It's not one random sin. It's repetitive sin, willful, repetitive sin again and again. He says in the second chapter, I'll just tell you this now. "O oh, undesirable nation or shameless nation, it means they have no shame about their sin. They're actually proud of it and celebratory about it. Does that sound familiar? You see what culture is trying to do. Culture is not trying to just create sin in the backdrop where it's secretive, it's, its traction is now at the place where it wants it to be out in front, considered popular and celebratory and ultimately completely justifiable on the basis of present philosophical ideals. And it's been happening all since the times of the Bible. It just, again, wears different clothing today. Settled in complacency. About this time last year, we had, uh, we had a whole bunch of our appliances that started breaking down in our home. All within like the same week. It was hot water heater, washing machine, dishwasher, uh, it, all of them. It was just it was crazy, right? Like all these things at one time. Come to find out what had been happening over time is that we had this hard water situation. And I did not have a water softener. (laughs) A bunch of people around the area are well aware, like, oh, yeah, you should have invested in that first thing you moved over here, right? Hard water. Anyway, all of these appliances, when we got into the inner guts of them, there was all this calcification hard crusted you know what I'm talking about and it just clogging all of the lines it just wreaked havoc and it was essentially unrepairable just had to start over and get all new appliances that was not a fun week month for us and then we got a water softener too (laughs) actually had that put in before we installed any of the appliances but to be settled in complacency I want you to have that picture in your mind. It's it's a very similar picture to what sin has done to our conviction, to our sensitivity, to our discernment on the inside of our soul when we continue to walk down that path repetitively and refuse to repent. You understand when people refuse to repent, when the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin... That is no different than the definition of rebellion, right? Here's what that means. And I don't care what it is. It can be your finances. It can be your relationships. It can just be your integrity. It's anywhere across the board. When the Holy Spirit's convicting us and then we refuse to yield to that, repent, change our ways, confess our sin, then we just continue to walk down that road. But what we do is rebellion, which the Bible describes as turning the shoulders. What does that mean? It means to turn our shoulder or our will away from God's will. And let me, th- let me just tell you this. This needs to be very concerning to anybody who's in that place. When we turn our will, the shoulder, away from God's will, we are turning ourselves away from God's ways. And what we are doing, the Bible says the, holy, the, the God resists the proud. We are not just going into neutral ground anymore. We are literally putting ourselves in opposition of the work of the Holy Spirit because it's not just neutral. He will actually oppose that. That's a a dangerous place to be, right? And so they they are settled in their complacency. Verse 13, it says, Therefore their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. And so I'm just going to touch on this one. But there is uh, a very sudden and drastic shift and transfer of wealth, resources, all of those kinds of things that we see happen when the day of the Lord arrives. Whenever the day of the Lord arrived on the enemies of God's people, which is uh, to say all of their pastures, all of their buildings, their cities, their vineyards, what happens is that God brings judgment on the enemies of Israel, and then Israel begins to inhabit or inherit the things that their enemies were possessing before. Whenever God brings judgment on rebellious Judah... The humble who remain in Judah will then inherit and possess the resources that were once in the hands of wicked, wayward people. Simply put, God has a plan and a purpose. His timing is is, is unknown to us often, but he has a, a plan and a purpose to ensure. That the pasture, the resources, the vineyards are placed in the hands of healthy shepherds and healthy stewards so that his flock can always graze in a place of health. What a promise to the body of Christ that if we walk in obedience to God, that he will always ensure he even moves and redirects members of the body of Christ when it's necessary, when something has become unhealthy, he moves and redirects them into places where there's green, healthy pasture and there's healthy, humble shepherds and stewards who are willing to steward those resources in a godly way. It's a wonderful promise that God presents to us. Wonderful promise. I, you know what would be amazing? I've thought about this a lot. You know, we see in Missouri how all of the Planned Parenthood centers are being shut down. And they're doing great work over there. And we've got to work on Illinois now, right? But what if all of those buildings and resources became churches? Just change hands. Our God. Is able to do such things, Amen. Uh, and then this last one, verse seventeen, he says, "I will bring distress upon men; they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord." You know, essentially, they've got to the point, guys, in their willful disobedience, their calcification of sin. It says they're like blind people; they they can't even discern right from wrong. And when the day of the Lord arrives. They're looking for escape routes, and there are none to be found. He says, silver and gold cannot save you. You know, it's interesting because they were paying tribute to Assyria for protection before. Their money was buying them protection. But now, there's no cave deep enough that they can hide in. There's no protection that they can pay enough silver and gold to get when the day of the Lord arrives. There is no protection to be found. There is no escape route because the invitation was presented and the repentance was denied, and now the time has come. Again, there's time until there's not time. Chapter 2, jump over there uh, Read verses one through three. It says, Gather yourselves together, O undesirable nation, or shameless nation, it says in another translation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So in the King James Version, it actually says, Before, 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 four times, which is just. This is a graphic plea from the Holy Spirit to repent before it's too late. It is always the heart of God is to get them back to walking with him, not for them to receive the judgment that's coming. In verse 3, it says, Seek the Lord, all of you meek of the earth. You remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? The humble. He says, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. This is a powerful picture to the people who are under the covering and protection of Almighty God, even when judgment is happening. He says, it will may, may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah's name actually means the Lord has hidden. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, because that works two ways. If people continue to walk in disobedience and sin, right, unrepented sin, you understand they're still carrying that. It's, it's not off of them. It's, they're still carrying it, whereas repented sin is forgiven and gone, and people need to hear that, too, because a lot of people I've even talked to over the years are convinced, that even though they've repented and asked God for forgiveness, that they're under some kind of penance for their sin with God, where now they're paying a price for the rest of their life for things that they've already done. I'm not saying there aren't earthly natural consequences like a destroyed body from addiction or something like that. All I'm saying is, is that when God has forgiven the sin, it's gone. But when it hasn't been repented of, they're still carrying it. And so he says, when the day of the Lord arrives... Zephaniah's name means the Lord has hidden. When people walk in disobedience, the Lord hides his face from them. But when people repent and come under God's covering of protection, the Lord hides or covers and protects them from the judgment that might be happening around them. It's good, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture that the Lord gives us. And the Bible speaks about this. Jesus even said many times... That because of what he was doing, that he was giving us a a pathway to escape the wrath of God that is due to mankind for the presence of sin that we're born into the world with. Now I'm just going to read these verses to you quickly so you hear the language about being hidden or saved from the wrath of God and from punishment once we repent and receive forgiveness of our sins. And you can just write these verses down and look them up later. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's intention and will is not to bring the wrath and punishment. There's a way out of that. But there are conditions. Romans 5, verse 9 says, We've been justified by the blood of Christ. And so we shall be saved from the wrath through Jesus. So because of Jesus' blood that washes away our sin, we are saved from the wrath that God will eventually pour out for the punishment of sin. We know that 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus became sin, who knew no sin. And that's why he was in such agony about going to the cross. If you remember, while he was on the cross... It went dark in the earth and there was a great earthquake because the entire weight of the sin of the world came upon Christ and then God poured his wrath out upon his son on that cross and settled the condition for sin once and for all for every one of us who would put our faith in Jesus Christ as our savior and the atoner of our sin. Am I making sense? So the wrath of God is being spared and we are being withheld that because of the repentance of our sinful condition. And John 3:36 says, "He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or remains on him." So until there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, The eventual pending punishment for the condition of sin, it just abides on a man or a woman until they repent of that sin. So uh, jump over here to chapter 3. And I'm going to go straight down to verses. uh, Let's go to verse 17. Hmm. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one, he will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So, consistent pattern from the prophets. Calling out their sin. Invitation for repentance and forgiveness promises of restoration if they do, right? It's a consistent pattern. So now he's speaking about the promises of restoration if they repent. And this verse, one of these statements here in verse 17, it's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, he will quiet you with his love, (laughs) which means to say he will soothe your soul. He will sustain you and provide every need that you would have. For when we are under the covering covering of his protection and provision, there is absolutely nothing that's lacking. But when one comes out from under the covering of protection and provision... And there is no anointing. There is no oil that's flowing into the house or into the life of that person. Guys, I'm just telling you, nothing that anyone has will ever be enough. It's that false sense of security and even pride that would suggest that we can somehow achieve or attain or provide for ourselves through earthly means or worldly means The things that God says, no, the way I've created this thing between you and I, I'm the only one who can provide that for you. And so long as I'm not providing it for you, any security that you think you have is a lie, and you have no security at all. It says it's just just a myth. But he will soothe us in our hearts and quiet us with his love. It says that he will gather the lame And bring back the outcast. (laughs) This is so good. Another translation says is that he will gather and restore those who have limps in their lives. Who is that? That's all of us. That's all of us. Limps in our lives. Places of brokenness. Wounds from our past. Times of placing Unhealthy trust and security and other things and God's just inviting us to get right with him to do away with all of that and let him restore a place of total security and total provision in our lives. that only comes from him and he will continue to quiet us with his love or soothe and sustain our hearts and souls so that we always have inner Peace And we are always walking in a place of total security, knowing man can never take from us what God alone promises to provide for us. And that's a place that we are invited to live. I love the message because he says, if you come back to me, then I will restore all of this to you. You know what's crazy about this? Oh, this, I hope this blows you away like it does me. All of these things that God is saying, I will restore to you. I'll make these waters to flow again, even though they've been clogged up. I'll release the brooks and they'll flow like streams and the valleys will even be flooded. It'll be so saturated in your life and in your culture. All of these promises for restoration. Oh, my gosh. There are promises that were already made and given to them back in the books of Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. All of these things that God says, I'm going to restore to you. If you go back and read in the the first five books from Exodus to, to Deuteronomy, it'll tell you God already promised to give them these things. What does that mean, church? It means That they are not getting something new that they've never had necessarily. They're actually being restored something that they relinquished long ago for living outside of the way God says that they were supposed to live. Oh, man. And I see so many people today in our present world who are walking along (laughs) in sin, in rebellion, in wickedness, convinced that everything is okay. And many times, it's as if they can look on the, what we would probably deem as the really drastic and horrific sins that are happening in our day. That many people can look on those things, just like Judah looked on the nations of the world that God was judging and saw their wickedness for what it was. But somehow they were unable, incapable, and so calcified they couldn't even look within and see their own sinfulness. Zephaniah dug in, and he messed with their private lives. He talked about their secret sins and the things that nobody could see Unless there might have been a camera in their home or something like that. You know what I'm talking about. The private sinfulness that they think they're getting away with. Walking along like everything's okay. And God is saying, I'm, I'm trying to get your attention. Just as much as I'm trying to get the attention of the nations of the world. We might look at these huge sins and see this as the real problem in our world. But I dare to say... I think what's even of greater concern are the subtle sins in the private lives of those who confess to be following Christ, who are unwilling to repent and allow God to purge those out of them. We are supposed to be the lights of the world. We are supposed to be the cities on a hill. But Jesus said you can look upon a speck in someone else's eye, but you can't even see the log in your own. And and if we're honest, guys, if any of us walk long enough in sin, we're all capable of getting to this place, walking along with a big log on our head, and we don't even know it's there because we're unwilling to turn over the secret stuff in our private lives to God. And I would say what's even more concerning is if we're just numb to that and okay with that. If you're stirred up about it, Or if people are convicted about it, that's the whole point of what God's trying to do. I want you to be stirred up about it. I want you to not be okay with it because I want to bring an antidote for it. I want to wash you of it. I want to bring you out from under it so you're not continuing to let it run your life. And I want to restore you to a place of promise and blessing. Because the lie is, is that somehow there are things over here that are better And more entertaining and more fun than life over here. That's the lie. Because Zephaniah knew that this message needed to be preached and it needed to be heard. Outside of that, he was not responsible for how the people reacted. But at the end of the day, he knew that if even one person would listen and turn, maybe the nation would still get judged. But you know, there was still a remnant that was preserved in the city of Babylon. For 70 years, there were still genuine men and women of God who God said he would protect. They would still have their own vineyards in the land. They would still raise their own children in the land. There was still a covering. Remember the Goshen principle last time? There was still a covering of protection over the true remnant of God, even in the midst of Babylon. Zephaniah and the prophets understood if If one person will hear in turn, then it's worth everything I have to sacrifice. Because I'm not playing for here. I'm playing for beyond. I'm playing for the kingdom. I'm not playing for what comes to me through culture. It's a tall thing and a big task for us to see this, each and every one of us in our own lives, and say, I'm going to lay down what culture can offer me so that I can receive only what kingdom can offer me. And I'll close with this. The hearts of the prophets, most of them, with perhaps the exception of Jonah. You can see they were genuinely pierced with compassion for the sins and the waywardness and the pending punishment for their own people. You know, they weren't walking around all fired up, like, "Ah, God, just take all those wicked people off to an island and just separate them and do away with them. We'd be just a lot better off if all those people were gone. Yeah, I've heard people say stuff like that. I know that there's some messed up stuff in our world today, but I just think the heart of God and the heart of his message isn't that we get so loveless that our attitude is, man, just take them away and send them to an island and just let them live somewhere on their own and do whatever they want to do. That's never the heart of God. It's never the heart of his messengers. It's to continue to contend for and intercede for and pray for even one more to be saved. In Revelation chapter 8, John sees this picture of the throne room. And in the throne room, This is right after the seven seals of the scroll that only the Lamb can open have been opened. And it's right before the seven trumpets begin to sound, which initiate the judgment of God on the earth during the tribulation times, before the second coming. And John sees this picture in the throne room of heaven. And what he sees is he sees an angel. And this angel picks up a censer. And the censers were used to burn incense before the lord they would put these hot coals from the altar's fire in the censer and they would add the incense and they would burn the incense and in John's vision this is unbelievable i'm trying to just close this message out by helping us to see where our heart needs to stay we got to get this right we got to get this right and the angel takes the alt, the the censer and says he mixes up The incense from the altar that is the prayers of the saints. Praying for God's will, praying for God's protection, praying for more to know Christ. He mixes the prayers of the saints in the censer. And then he also takes some fire off the altar and puts it in the censer and he throws it down to And it says there are thunders and lightnings and earthquakes. This is what I'm trying to say. The judgment of God. It still accompanies the mercy of God. We are praying. The prayers of the saints as the fire from the altar is being thrown down to the earth and judgment is beginning to commence. The prayers of the saints that are still covering the people who will hear is falling right with the fire of judgment. So, yes, God is going to deal with sin, but God is still presenting an invitation for repentance for anyone who will hear there is time until there isn't time. Amen.